Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Many of y'all know that I'm really passionate about non-toxic products, and I'm super mindful of the products that we bring into our home. I actually am not a big makeup wearer, and part of that is because I've had a really hard time finding non-toxic makeup products that actually work and that I actually like until I found Araza Beauty. Araza Beauty is an amazing organic natural paleo makeup makeup company. A lot of their um, products are made from real food ingredients, and you can pronounce most of the ingredients. I love their all-in-one coconut cream foundation. It offers a lot of coverage, actually more coverage than I'm typically used to um, because I don't really like the way makeup feels on my face, but it's so comfortable. I don't feel it on my face, and it looks amazing. I also love their mango cream color pot for just a little bit of color on my cheeks. Everything is so creamy and makes your skin look so dewy and healthy. You can save 15% off your first order when you use the code TAYLOR. So go to arazabeauty.com, that's A-R-A-Z-A beauty.com, and use the code TAYLOR to save 15% on your first order. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have a really cool guest on. We are going to be talking to Dr. Joel Warsh, aka Dr. Joel Gator of the popular parenting Instagram. Is a, He is a board-certified pediatrician in Los Angeles, California, who specializes in parenting, wellness, and integrative medicine. He grew up in Toronto, Canada, and completed degrees in kinesiology, psychology, and epidemiology in community health before earning his medical degree from Thomas Jefferson Medical College. He completed his pediatric medicine training at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and worked in private practice in Beverly Hills before founding his current practice, Integrative Pediatrics and Medicine Studio City, in 2018. Dr. Gator has published research in peer-reviewed journals on topics including childhood injuries, obesity, and physical activity. He has been featured in numerous documentaries, films, summits, podcasts, and articles including CBS, Fox, LA Parent, Mind, Body, Green, and many others. He is also the founder of the Parenting Masterclass series, Raising Amazing, which can be found at RaisingAmazingPlus.com. He's the author of the children's book, Love, Dad, featuring multiple celebrities, which is currently impressed with Penguin Publishing and set to release in 2024. He is a consultant for high-profile brands in the health and wellness space. So I think I think this conversation is really interesting. I think you're going to get a lot from it. Um, I think it is really cool to talk to people who I may not agree with about every single thing, but still can learn from them um, and pick their brains, and we can have discussions. And so you'll see at the end of the episode, we do talk about sleep training just a little bit, and we agree on some things and maybe don't have the exact same opinion on um, certain things. And I think that is totally okay and totally fine. Um, So I really enjoyed talking to him and appreciated his perspective and I am sure you will too. So without further ado, let's get to this episode. 
So do you have any questions for me before we get started? Uh, no, just uh, the only thing for me is that only I generally don't talk about vaccines, but everything else is fine. Okay. Sounds good. And do you have a, like a hard cutoff time you need me to be off or you need to be off? No, but like an hour, I would say. Okay. Sounds perfect. Um, okay. So what I'm going to do, I record a more formal bio separately. So we'll just jump right in. I'll have you introduce yourself and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Let me just pause for a second and then we'll get started. Hi, Dr. Gator. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, so I, my name is Dr. Joel Warsh, but people call me Dr. Gator. That's actually because my wife's last name is Intelligator. Uh, it's not a Florida oh. thing, even though I have nothing against Florida, but it's it's just a wife thing. So people gotcha. always ask. I was gonna I was gonna ask you <laughs> about the the name. So that's where that that came about, and everyone thought it was funny, so kind of stuck. Um, and, and that's, you know, how I got the name Dr. Gator, but I, so I'm a pediatrician board certified. I work in Los Angeles. I got a little bit frustrated with the regular system of medicine, the super short visits, treating medications, uh, for everything. And, and I really also was very interested because I saw so many patients and, and friends and family members go to alternative practitioners after being in the Western system for, for so long and then get better. And it really sparked my interest to learn a little bit more about that. So I started learning about natural medicine. I'm not against Western medicine at all. I just think that there's a time and a place. And so in my practice, we balance the best of, of both worlds together. And, and that's, you know, generally what I do in my office. And then I also do a lot of stuff online. I have a masterclass website, Raising Amazing Plus and a podcast, Raising Amazing, and just de de talking about parenting and holistic health and, and all, all that sort of thing. Cool. That's awesome. Well, you answered a little bit of my first question because I was going to ask you if you could talk about what your major, I guess, criticisms and or frustrations of the current Western medical paradigm are. So I'm wondering if you can maybe go into just a little bit more depth about some of those major frustrations. Yeah. Overall, the biggest frustration for me is that we're so focused on treatment when it comes to modern Western medicine, I think it's very important, right? It's amazing what we've done in modern medicine in terms of uh, finding cures to things that might've killed you years ago. We have amazing medications that can save your life, antibiotics. These are all great, wonderful inventions when we use them if we need them. But I think at this point, we've gone a little bit too far sometimes and we're so focused on treatment and not um, focused enough on, on prevention, especially these days where their chronic disease rates are skyrocketing. And more than 50% of adults have a chronic disease and about 50% of kids have a chronic disease, meaning like asthma, allergies, um, autoimmune conditions. You know, there's a whole range of, of different things that, that everybody, uh, conditions that people can have. But what we're seeing over the last few decades is just that number of, of conditions rise and rise and rise and more and more patients, you know, continue to need a medication or multiple medications. And that means we're doing something wrong. There's a big problem with our health and we're not addressing that. We're very much focused in modern medicine on, on treatment, but the treatment is too late. You know, we wanna to get to kids before they get a disease. We wanna to get to them, you know, ideally before or, or figure out what is triggering or causing some of these conditions and maybe make some changes so that way the future generations can be healthier. And right now, I don't think we're doing nearly enough. And it's very tough in the modern system because you have very short visits with patients and, and things like that. And we're just not, spending the time we need to on, on prevention and getting the information out there that we really need to work on 
preventing disease. Yeah, I agree. I'm an occupational therapist. So I spent quite a few years working in the hospital setting with a lot of doctors. And one of the things I agree with everything you're saying. And then I also, um, I just have noticed that the current medical model seems to be really focused on the short term. So how do we address this particular symptom, usually with the medication, but there's not as much um, emphasis or even really informed consent being given to patients, to parents, if it's their children, about the potential long-term or even short-term impact of that intervention or medication. And so there's, it seems like there's, there's not a balance either way. And I also noticed that there is this, um, it's taboo. It's taboo to even talk about it. Sometimes it's taboo to question what any doctor is saying at times. It's taboo. If you, if you do mention, well, Hey, antibiotics, you know, they do have some risks to them as well. You're now all of a sudden anti-science or anti-medicine. So there's really no good balance in our society. I feel like to have an open conversation about both the benefits of Western medicine and when it can be used appropriately, how it's beneficial, but then also the negative side of that. It's almost like we just, we're going on this track of Western medicine is wonderful and amazing and there's nothing, there's no negatives and that's just not honest. No, I agree. I completely agree. And, you know, again, like doctors are good people, right? Especially you talk about the pediatricians in my world, right? These are good people, you know, it's not like they're out there to harm your kid. They're there to make your kid better. They went in because they love kids and they want to help kids. So it's not like people, the doctors are, are evil trying to hurt you. But I think it's like, that's what we learned, right? We learned how to treat and it's important. We want to be able to, right? I think that's a very, very, very important part of what we do, but it's the only thing that we're taught. And there's so many other alternatives out there in the world and that have been used for, for generations and decades and, and you know, centuries. And we're not taught that. And we're almost taught that it's like woo woo crazy, you know, out there stuff. But a lot of these things have been used or are being used around the world all the time and have generations and generations of you know, safety and, and, and use and, and help. And so I think it's like, it's bridging that gap between the two and, and, and figuring out, you know, what can be effective in, in this alternative world that can be brought into modern medicine to minimize uh, medication use. Because you think about a, like a great example is acupuncture, right? And acupuncture was fairly woo woo a few decades ago. And now you can find it basically in every hospital as a first line therapy for pain instead of using medications like opioids, because we know we have you know, an opioid epidemic and all that. So it's like, it, it took a long time to, to work its way in, but you know, it's a great alternative to using a medication. And there are you know, very, very decreased side effects from getting acupuncture versus taking an opioid, right? I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's very obvious when you say it, but it's just, that's what was done because it was like, okay, you have pain, here's the medicine, here's how you can make it better. But it's a very short-sighted view, but it requires um, a long time, a lot of research, a lot of information and, and everything in medicine is very slow to change, which is good sometimes too, because you don't want um, to give something natural that could harm you as well. But there just are so many other things out there and we need to bridge that gap somehow. We have to come together because everybody has the same goal and it's to have healthy kids and healthy adults. But what we're doing clearly isn't working and the current model just doesn't work that well for chronic disease because you don't have enough time to address it appropriately. You cannot dive into somebody's lifestyle in five minutes. It's like, it's not really possible.
Right. Yeah. Well, I, I specialize in sleep, holistic sleep support for families, no sleep training. And that's, I, I have the same issue is a lot of people come to me or they, they message me on Instagram or send me an email and they want me to, um, you know, tell them how to improve their child's sleep. But I need to really, in order to effectively figure out what's going on, I need to talk to them for 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe really get an idea of who their child is, what's going on, what is happening with sleep and why that's happening, because we have to explore the root cause. And so it's the same for so many things, but I think as a society, we've just been kind of conditioned to expect quick fixes. Um, and I think that's true in Western medicine as well. So you talked about, you know, the overuse of medications being one of your frustrations. And I agree. I think that's a really big issue. Why do you think that is? Um, and instead of getting to the root cause, like are, are doctors, do doctors have education in, in med school about exploring root causes of certain health issues or medical conditions? So I would say yes and no, right? I, I don't think, so I learned a lot about root cause from learning functional medicine. That That's what really kind of changed my viewpoint because that's really what it's focused on. And you definitely think to some degree about what's the cause, right? It's like, oh, what's causing this issue? Cancer, right? So you, it's not that it, it's not something that's taught, but I don't think it's taught in that way that, that you're kind of describing it of really thinking about the, the foundations of health and, and where little things that you do every single day can you know reach this point where the your inflammation overflows in your body and you get a chronic disease of some sort. Like we're not taught in that way. Um, we are taught about medicine because we're taught about, we get really good at identifying serious things, right? Like that's, that's what I think medicine has become really, really good at is like, here are these symptoms. Let's rule out, make sure it's not something very severe. It's not very severe. Okay. It's a virus. You're good. Well, we'll see you later. Or, you know, it's a, it's an ear infection. Here's your antibiotic, go home. And sometimes you need a medication, but sometimes the right answer is not to do anything. Sometimes the right answer is to wait a couple of days. Sometimes maybe you could give them some sort of support that, so they're doing something, but not a medication. And then it gets better on its own. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you will need it in a couple of days. So it's communication and a discussion and just a knowledge of other, other modalities that are available in the short term, but it becomes really, really difficult when you only have a couple of minutes with patients, you don't have the time to explain it and you don't necessarily have doctors or patients that are open to those other uh, modalities. And so if you have an antibiotic for an ear infection, that's what you give. Uh, but that doesn't always mean that's the exact right choice for that patient at the time. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the more that we bridge that gap and and we start to, patients start to want alternative remedies and doctors start to learn about it or practitioners start to learn about it, then I think it will infiltrate. It's definitely starting. I mean, there's definitely more and more practitioners that are open to it and more and more patients that are interested in it. But we're really, you know, very, very, very early on. And there's a lot of pushback, which is always going to be in medicine. That's part of the deal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you think that this is primarily a, like a reimbursement issue, like an insurance issue that limits the amount of time that doctors spend with patients or is it something else? Like, how do you think we can bridge that gap? Because the problem I run into as a, a parent who wants to go towards more natural minded, holistic approaches as much as possible is we can't find healthcare practitioners that take insurance that, right. that treat us the way we want to be treated. And so a lot, most parents, I would say probably don't have, um, the resources to go, you know, pay out of pocket for all of these practitioners or even one practitioner, cause it can be in really expensive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a, there's no easy answer to what you just said, because I, I do think it's a systemic problem to a significant 
you know, there's two levels of, of the issue, right? There's the macro systemic issue, which is insurance, healthcare. I mean, every place has a little bit different healthcare, but the reality of it is you, you can't as a doctor, therapist, whatever it is, like you do not get paid enough from insurance to see a patient for an hour. Like it's just, that's just not the way that it is. You're not going to stay open. Uh, you know, if you get paid 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever for an hour and you have a staff in an office to run, it's just, it's just not going to work. They, they just don't, don't pay enough even close to, to do that kind of medicine and to spend the time that you really need. And, and also if you, if every doctor spent an hour with every patient, then there would be nobody to see patients, right? There's not that many doctors too. So like there's, there's, um, there's multiple bottlenecks there, but I think that it's going to come down to priority for a lot of people. Sometimes you just, you do have to spend the money if you can and, and find a practitioner that you can work with or kind of have two practitioners work with a natural person, work with your, your regular doctor, spend the time if you need to, or, you know, you can go in once a year to kind of do your preventative stuff and, and see your doctor for the more, more acute things under insurance. Like that's a possibility. Um, I, I, I hope one day that we move to some sort of model where we work with multiple practitioners. I think that's probably the, actual solution that would work but it would have to be reimbursed appropriately or people would have to pay cash for it but i i don't i don't ever see a model where all doctors spend an hour with you that's just probably not reasonable um and maybe not even the best use of their their time i think i would hope it'd be turned into more like a dentist model you know where you go in and you see you know your hygienist or, or whatever and then you see the dentist at the end for the, the more acute issues but there's no reason you couldn't go to a health center and see a nutritionist for half an hour and see a you know, with a therapist for 20 minutes and see what, depending on whatever you need, but you could do these things. You don't have to spend the whole time with your doctor, but you can still do the medical stuff, quote unquote, with your doctor and then, um, you know, spend more time. So it, it just depends. But as of right now, yeah, if you want to spend more time, you really have to pay cash because there isn't the ability in general to do it through an insurance model because the reimbursement just isn't there to, yeah. do, to do that model. And, and that's true of pretty much, I mean, the most therapists, you know, psychologists don't take insurance anymore. Most uh, like physical therapists and occupational therapists, you know, maybe they'll be out of network and they'll, you know, reimburse or whatever, but they, they get paid like 20, 30, $40 to see a patient. It's like, you're not going to stay open anymore. And it's really tough because the insurance wants to minimize what they pay, but it's basically putting practitioners out of business. So it just, yeah. it's hard. And it's hard as it's hard too, because then you have to, if you do choose to take insurance, you have to compromise your quality of care that you're giving to your clients and patients. And most of us don't want to do that. Um, that, that brings up an interesting point that I talk about a lot too, is that, um, you know, you're talking about this, it would be ideal if we had this model of seeing different, like multiple different practitioners, different types of healthcare practitioners. And I agree. And one of the things that I noticed just in talking, I mean, I talk to hundreds, probably hundreds of families a week of parents telling me things that their doctors have said to them, um, information, advice that their doctors have given them. And what I run into is seeing that it almost seems as we've put pediatricians in particular kind of on this pedestal of the experts, the all-knowing experts of how we should raise a child. It's not just that they're experts in medical care. They are now experts in sleep. They are experts in infant mental health. They are experts in breastfeeding, but they're not actually usually experts in those areas. So I hear stories every week of pediatricians giving absolutely horrible breastfeeding advice to moms or absolutely ridiculous information about how an infant should or should not be sleeping and sleep training and all of this stuff. And it's topics that they really probably don't have additional training in. And I don't think that they were really taught much about it in school. And so it almost seems as if we're putting so much, and I'm saying we're just like collectively in general, 
putting so much burden and responsibility on the shoulders of the pediatrician. And it's not possible for one person to be an expert in all of those areas. And the pediatricians really should be acknowledging that lack of knowledge in certain areas and referring out to other professionals. But, and I'm sure many of them do, but I'm seeing and hearing about a lot of them aren't, and they're just taking it upon themselves to kind of provide information that may or not be, may or may not be great information or accurate information. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think it's just like you said, it's very provider specific. And then, you know, even when you talk about, okay, like the one doctor gets bad information or, or this kind of information, but there's so many things that are in the parenting space where there isn't one way to do it. So one person thinks this is good information, one person thinks it's bad information. So it's, it's really tough. But I think the greater point that you're making that is very much true is, is that we need to have some humility, right? I, I think that we need to have a lot more humility in modern medicine to realize, especially now with the internet and the amount of knowledge that is out there and the vast array of amazing practitioners out there that, you know, we may be pretty knowledgeable in fields or, or, you know, see things or talk about all the time, but we may not be, you know, quote unquote experts in everything. And there are people that do this every day. Um, and that maybe part of that sometimes is actually being aware of certain practitioners that are available for certain topics. And then other things, it's just a little bit of you know, introspective nature for the practitioner of like, okay, maybe I don't know all the answers to this. Maybe I shouldn't give this answer today. Maybe I should say, well, this is what I think, but you could work with this person, but it's also hard because you don't necessarily want to be referring everybody out for everything. So there is, you know, a, a good level of training on many of these topics, but it's, it's, it's very doctor specific because there's definitely doctors that are experts at lactation consults and there's doctors that are experts at sleep and there are doc- there just depends and some people don't know anything about it or very little about it. it it just depends on I think a lot of what you're interested in and what you keep training on and what you see on a daily basis because there's so much information out there that you just can't possibly be up to date on everything I mean there how many new research papers are there every day right in the on the internet like you know, thousands, millions, hundreds, I have no idea. So there's no possible way you can be up to date on the latest information. And there are so many fields and and subjects where there are people that are doing this every day. So they're probably much more up to date. So it's just, it's just a fine balance. And like lactation, I think is the best example of that where, yeah, we, we definitely get some training in lactation and we definitely know, you know, a good amount about it. And a lot of times we can be very helpful for the patients, but I, I always tell my patient, like, I'm never going to know as much as a lactation consultant. Like this is what they do every day. They're, you know, wildly amazing. And they spend an hour with you and they, this is what they do. So if you have those questions, like, here's what I think, but go talk to, to them and, and, and do a consult. So it's, it's, it's a balance, but I do hope that uh, medicine over the next you know couple of decades gets a little bit more humility. I think we, we think of modern medicine as the end all be all and alternative medicine is everything else, but realistically modern medicine is the thing that's new. And alternative medicine is a stuff right. that's been around forever. So there's no, there's no reason why we can't do both. There's no reason why we can't balance both worlds. There's no reason why we can't bring the two worlds together and learn about both and, and, and be safe about it and, and introduce as many holistic options as we can for the patients and work together as a team uh, with practitioners like yourself and, and, and nutritionists and, and whatever. I mean, whatever the patient needs, there's so many practitioners out there. There's no reason why we can't do it, but it's not that easy in an insurance model. And there's only so much time. So it's, it's not, it's not an easy answer, but it is possible. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with the humility piece. There needs to be more humility. And I agree with the breastfeeding example too. That's, that's one of the biggest um, areas of concern that I have. I really think that I don't know if this is possible or ideal. It's probably not ideal, but I really think that a skilled lactation consultant should be on staff in some way, or at least available for a referral at all pediatric offices. Um, I did like a very informal poll on my story, my Instagram stories a, a while back. And I asked parents, um, mothers who were breastfeeding and had their child had feeding challenges, some sort of issue with breastfeeding, how many of their pediatricians um, referred them to a breastfeeding consultant, somebody that was specialized in breastfeeding. And I think it was only like 32%. The rest of them did not. They just gave, and again, most of the time, it isn't the best advice. They're not looking at latch. They're not, um, you know, when I had breastfeeding issues as a, as a, a new mom, first time mom, our pediatrician at the time just said, you need to supplement with formula. That was it. I didn't get referred to a breastfeeding consultant. My child actually had oral ties, but I didn't find out until she was three because I didn't know about oral ties and nobody assessed her. So it's just this, this is an area that I think is just huge. And pediatricians either should have that training and specialization in med school or whatever it may be in their, um, what is it called? And not a rotate an internship oh, like residency, residency, because mm -hmm. it's such an important area when you're working in the population of pediatrics, right. Or they should be prepared to have a specialized professional somehow on staff available to the parents, just because it's so common. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, we, we, we have one. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I agree with you. I think that it, it depends on the office size. You know, we're not big enough of an office to have somebody here all the time, but we have somebody that, you know, she works with our patients. And then if they need an issue, we you know, give her the phone number and they call. Um, but yeah, some of the bigger offices do actually have somebody there, you know, a couple of times a week or, or whatever it is. And I think that's the right thing to do. I, I think that breastfeeding is very tough for many parents. Most people don't realize how tough it's going to be. And, and a little bit of assistance can go a long way. Um, but at the end of the day, again, it goes back to humility and just knowing that there are, there is a benefit to working as a team. Right. right? And I think that many doctors do that. There's no question. I mean, we, 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 you know, we refer out all the time and, and lots of people are okay with doing that, but you know, some aren't, and there's good and bad players in, in every field and every, uh, you know, every discipline. And so it's, it's just, I think it just needs to permeate the medical world and come from the parents and, and people change when they need to. And if society changes and expects something different, then, then uh, healthcare will change along with it. And, and, th and that's where it's going to come from because it's, it's probably not going to change from within. <laughs> it's my, no. my guess based on where we're going. Well, not at least at this point, unless something, you know, really drastic happens, but I'm not sure what's going to be more drastic than half the population having chronic disease. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. One thing that um, really stuck out to me about you and when I first found, I found your Instagram account was you had posted something. I think it was shortly after the American Academy of Pediatrics changed their um, like motor milestone guidelines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they had removed crawling and you made a post basically saying that you think crawling is important, but you are not sure that it's like how important important it is. Like you don't know if it's as important as walking or something like that, but you know that that's not your area of specialty or expertise. And so you're open to learning and hearing from therapists, OTs, PTs, et cetera, who know more about that to learn why they think crawling is so important. And that stuck out to me because I think that humility and just acknowledgement that, hey, I actually don't know all of the, the things that there are to know about children. And I could learn from somebody else who has a different education, uh, educational background than me. I think that is what 
really all of us need to have. Like we all need to be able to acknowledge, hey, this is what I know a lot about. This is what I don't know so much about. And I can always learn from other people. Yeah, it, I think it's wild that it's not that way usually because it's, you know, just with that specific example, it's like, okay, I know about development, right? I mean, I see kids developing, I know the milestones, whatever it is, but do I work with kids on their motor skills ever? No, <laughs> I have no idea. Like that's not what we do as a pediatrician, right? So what an occupational therapist or physical therapist does, I don't barely even know. I mean, maybe I've been there once or twice and kind of seen some general things, but even sometimes to the point where you learn that there are treatments available or practitioners that do certain things that you never even heard of. I mean, that, that is, is very true in the, I would say this, like the psychotherapy world where there are so many modalities that therapists do that we, I don't even, I didn't even know existed when I was in, in training. And then you learn about it through, you know, making a friend or talking about it or, or whatever. You're like, what? Like, how do I not know about this? <laughs> right. Yeah. But there's, but, the, but I think people don't realize, you know, families and parents are like that we're still human too. And there's, there's so much out there and you can only learn so much. So I, I, we just don't know about everything out there. And people bring me stuff all the time. Parents like, hey, did you hear about this supplement? Or did you, what do you think about this? And then I have to go read about it because I, you know, I, I, I read a lot and I learn about a lot of things. And, but I mean, there's just, there's a lot to know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I would love to move into just uh, talking about a few different um, medical issues or health issues that are commonly just pediatricians will often just prescribe medications. And maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the more, some of the alternatives to just immediately treating with the medication, that would be really helpful, I think, to the parents listening. Um, so ear infections are a big one because I know mm -hmm. ear infections are often, they just get prescribed antibiotics. Can you talk about whether all ear infections need antibiotics? Yeah, I would say no, generally no. Um, actually most ear pain does not need antibiotics. A, a serious ear infection probably does. Um, but most of the time when your kids have ear pain, it does not need antibiotics. The, the general guidelines overall are to wait 24 hours to 48 hours if the pain is not super severe um, or they don't have super high fevers like 104, 105, and they're, they're doing okay. Otherwise, most of the time, if there's pain, the ears just got pressure, maybe there's some fluid back there and then it will drain out on its own. And if you hang in there for a day or two with some pain medication um, or drops or things like that, then, then usually you won't need to take antibiotics. Most infections all, you know, all in the body, including ear is viral. So um, a viral infection does not need antibiotics. It doesn't do anything for it. Many of the ear infections are not susceptible, even if they are bacterial to amoxicillin, which is usually what's given. So then giving that doesn't necessarily help too. So the, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are. I think it's like in the 90 to 99% of ear pain does not need an antibiotic. Sometimes it does. If it doesn't get better, if it's very severe, um, then it's not unreasonable to do it. But most of the time you go to say an urgent care, uh, they take a look, they see a little bit of bulging, maybe some redness and, or you have some pain and fevers in the ear and they're like, okay, here's antibiotics, just start it. But probably one out of 10 times, if not less, um, you don't need an antibiotic. And most of the time I talk to parents and say like, okay, you know, it's a little bit red. Try, try these garlic drops first, try, you know, a little pain medicine first, give it a day or two. Here's a prescription, hold on to it. You know, if you think it's really bad, you can fill it. And very rarely do people fill it. It's very rare. Almost the only times I'll ever have patients that need antibiotics is usually when it gets like four or five, six days, they're still in pain. It's not getting better. They're still having fevers. They're pretty miserable. 
those are the situations where it truly is a bacterial infection and they need it. Every once in a while, it'll be on the earlier end if it looks, the ear looks really bad, but that's rare. It's very rare. And, and most of the time, they're totally fine. And then, you know, they, they never fill the prescription. Like 99, 98% of the time, I don't know. It's just most of the time. Yeah. It's very rare. So you, you're saying that less than uh, 10%, most likely less than 10% of ear pain, ear infections would even respond or need respond to or need antibiotics. Right. Based on the studies that they did many years ago, where they actually took the fluid from the middle ear and looked at what was causing the, the fluid and inflammation, it's usually viruses, right? Which is true yeah. of everything. So the, all of those, which I, I think it was like 80% were viral, um, if I'm remembering the study correct. And then there was something like another 10, 15% were, and were bacteria that were not susceptible to amoxicillin. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion was amoxicillin is not going to work most of the time, basically. Yeah. Um, what are the ramifications of prescribing antibiotics to infections that are not likely even going to be helped by the antibiotics? The ramifications are, you know, twofold. So one, it's anything that you take has can have positive or negative, right? Uh, there is, there are side effects to every medication potentially. Um, when you have an antibiotic, you're killing bacteria. So you're going to be killing good bacteria and bad bacteria. It's going to affect your body. It's going to affect your gut. Um, so, you know, will you have some sort of serious negative risk from taking antibiotic? Probably not. You'll probably be okay. Many of us have taken antibiotics and we're totally fine, but it's not benign. It can cause issues for you. And, and certainly if you're taking antibiotics many times and it can throw your, your body off. Uh, and we're still just at the beginning of our understanding of the microbiome and, and our gut bacteria and how that is affected, but you're certainly not helping it, right? You're, you're, you're killing off a bunch of stuff that's supposed to be there. And then it has to repopulate after that. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit off and maybe that starts to cascade of, of other issues. Um, so that, that is one, one, you know, bigger category of, of what it can do. And then um, two, the, just the greater implications of creating uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. And the more that we take any medication, the more that the, the disease, the bacteria are going to learn, um, are going to work their way around it. And then the medication is not going to work anymore. So we just want to use things when we need to. And, and I go back and I'll say it again. It's not that you shouldn't ever do it, right? It's not that you don't ever need antibiotic. It doesn't mean that amoxicillin never works, but the vast majority of the time when people take a medication, it's a placebo. It's, they are going to get better anyways. And they, if they had have waited another day or two, they probably would have gotten better without the medication. The, the art is to figure out those times where you actually do need that medication and to prescribe it when you need it, because that's the thing that you need to make you better, as opposed to just giving the advice of hanging in there for another day or two. So that's where there's a, a balance between those two worlds, because you also don't want to not give an antibiotic for pneumonia. Right. So, yeah, it seems pick. like it's a, it's a balance of, uh, it's a risk, a risk benefit assessment. When mm -hmm. is the benefit going to outweigh the potential risk? And a lot of times maybe the risk will outweigh the potential benefit. And so we're kind of just giving these medications without thinking of the risk portion of it and whether it is actually worth that risk or there's a net benefit at the end. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Every decision in medicine should be risk benefit. And I do think in modern medicine, there is a part of the risk benefit that comes from the medical side of liability. So I think that's mm -hmm. where there's a big, um, you know, vortex of all of this stuff, because it's, it's very, it's problematic when you are, let's say, in urgent care to not give anything. And then the, the one kid that you don't give it to turns out to have something really bad. And then, it, you know, it, it, you run down a cascade when realistically that was really the outlier and, and, and 
the medication maybe wouldn't have made any difference anyways, and they did the right thing, but but you run into the liability. So it's easier to do something um, and, and make sure you don't miss that one, you know, 0.001% chance of, of whatever bad thing happening. Um, so it's a, it's a balance, but the decisions realistically should be made on a risk benefit ratio, but the only appropriate way to really be able to do that properly in medicine is to have a small amount of patients, small-ish, and have good communication between the families and the provider. Because if you don't give a medication, for, let's say it's day two of an ear infection, you don't give it and you're like, ah, you know, it's, it's probably doesn't need it, but we maybe will need it. You need to have somebody who's going to call you the next day and be like, nah, it's not getting better. I do think we need to, to recheck it. Or, or I do think we should like that. That's a big part of it. Because if you wait another week, that's where you could run into an issue. So it, it comes mm-hmm. with communication too, and the ability to continuously monitor something because it's very rare that you're going to go from totally fine to like super sick in a couple of hours. But if you have that conversation, like, Oh, they're way worse now. I'm actually really worried. Okay. Let's do it. That that's the part that's really important to the safety side of, of, um, waiting. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Are there any like herbal remedies or anything like that, that, that work for ear infections sometimes? Like I've heard or oil of oregano. Do any of those things actually work? Yeah, that, and there's some anecdotal and, and um, some very basic evidence for, for garlic and mullein drops to be helpful. People do it all the time. You can find those in, you know, just general um, grocery stores. You want to be careful if there's like pus or drainage coming out of the air. You don't want to do it for that. But there's some evidence. It probably doesn't harm. Maybe cause, maybe helps a little bit um, for some ear pain. Um, saline, like nose rinses can be helpful just to decrease the sinus pressure. That's usually what is, is pretty helpful for, for patients as well. And like general immune support is always good. Uh, and, and there are lots of things that, that can potentially be helpful. These are things you got to discuss with your own practitioner, depending on your situation, but you know, multivitamins and vitamin D and vitamin C and elderberry and zinc. Um, these are pretty commonly used immune support supplements that a lot of families use. And the, how much it helps or not is hard to know, but there is some evidence. Some may think they help a little bit. Uh, for colds and flus and things like that. So it probably doesn't harm. There's very minimal risk and maybe it helps a little bit. Okay. Um, What about reflux? I'd love to hear your thoughts about reflux. So what is the current typical course of action in the medical world? um, And what are some other alternatives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So it it depends on how bad and, and what age. So usually we're talking about like a newborn, you know, first couple of weeks, maybe first couple of months, reflux, lots of spit ups. The... I would say majority of families that have kids that are spitting up are more worried about the spit ups than they really need to be. Most kids do spit up to some degree and that's normal. They don't have a very strong muscle at the top of their stomach when they're first born and they lie down and things come back up and and they spit up. And and a lot of times parents think it's really a huge spit up or vomit, but it's actually pretty small in nature and they're growing and otherwise healthy. So the first thing to think about is how are they growing, right? If, if, If they're not gaining weight, and they're also spitting up a lot, then that's much more concerning than a kid who's at the 99th percentile and totally happy and chubby, but they spit up, you know, when they feed, then that's not necessarily super concerning. I always want to do things to try to minimize it, but some spit up is, is okay. And it's, it's actually pretty typical. We always start with what we call reflux precautions. So just keeping upright, um, using gravity to help you after you feed 
um, can be really helpful because then things go down um, and they get a little farther in the system and then they're less likely to come back up. Sometimes you see with reflux that they're just overfeeding. That's not as common, but definitely something to think about if your kid's spitting up a lot and, and you're really, you have a really big milk supply or you're feeding them in you know, a formula and you, they're taking a lot, then sometimes they're just getting a little more than they can um, handle. And so that's one of the reasons they're spitting up again, not usually super dangerous, but just something to be mindful of because maybe you can optimize. Um, sometimes they're just not digesting it, the milk very well. So you can do some probiotics that could be helpful for some babies. Uh, grape water is good for calming the belly in general. So that can be something that could be really helpful. Belly massage uh, can be really helpful. Some patients go to cranial sacral therapists or even chiropractors and, and, and do gentle uh, massage or you know, very gentle adjustments. And sometimes people feel like that helps, sometimes they don't, but those are just options that people have out there depending on their um, you know, interest and in, in what they want to do and what the situation is. And you need to get checked first to make sure that they are healthy, but most reflux is normal and most reflux doesn't need a medication. Usually for a medication, where that would come in is if they're not gaining weight or they're in extreme pain, super fussy, um, not gaining weight and just, you know, miserable basically. Otherwise a little bit of reflux is probably okay. And just work your way through it. And it gets better usually after a few months. Yeah. The, um, I work with a lot of families who have babies with reflux, um, because I work with a lot of families who have babies with oral ties, mm -hmm. um, and their, their sleep is often disrupted. They're, they're uncomfortable for whatever reason. And, um, in my experience, two of the other most common causes or potential causes of reflux are oral ties or some sort of latch breastfeeding issue. Mm -hmm. And also food sensitivities is another, mm -hmm. is another big one that I always explore with families as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree. But I think you probably see, you see a select population because you see the, the worst, yeah. worst ones. So I, I think that the ones that are getting referred to somebody like you, that those are very good things to think of because yeah, a lot of times it's either the you know, you have to think about why it's like the anatomy. So what, what, what is going on from the top to the bottom where there could be some issue where they're not feeding appropriately, like a latch, like they're not feeding well, like they're getting too much milk um, or, you know, like the other stuff that you said. So that, that, make, that makes perfect sense. And, and I think that from my perspective, I don't see the severe stuff very often. You probably almost only see the severe stuff because you're getting the referrals. Yeah. What, um, what are some of the side effects that reflex medication has? Yeah, I, I mean, we're still at the very early stages of, of knowing these things. And that's always tough because most of the studies are pretty short term and things that are on the market, they don't, you know, they have their usual long list of, well, it could kill you. It could um, give you stomach ache, diarrhea, vomiting, blood, you know, all those things, right? They pretty much everything on the list of what could, is possible could be with anything. Um, there's some concerns about long-term risk from some of the, you know, medications that are on the market and some of them were, were pulled you know, more recently in terms of cancer risk and, and things like that. Um, but long-term, yeah, it's hard to know because we don't really have good long-term research on almost anything. And you correlating something that happens 10 years from now or five years from now is pretty tough. Um, but I would say logically, it probably throws off your gut, right? So you're mm -hmm. using a medication, you're using it every day. Um, it's not the natural way that things are supposed to be. So it probably throws off your gut microbiome and the bacteria and then then whatever kind of cascade that affects you um like eczema and other things are, are a strong possibility based on logic i would say yeah what about constipation um i think that would go into the world of all the things gut so diarrhea constipation 
reflux, you know, spitting up, all those kind of things. Most certainly possible with any medication, anything that you're taking orally, because it's going to muck up what's going on in there. It can cause inflammation and then it's going to throw things off. So anytime you change up what you're eating, what you put in your mouth, basically could throw off your gut. Um, and so you just need to be mindful of that. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you prescribe your, or do you recommend, well, not recommend, do you recommend your patients if they are having constipation or their babies are having constipation? Do you, isn't Miralax the common like medication for that? So that would be the most commonly used medication. You know, that's one of those other, you know, I would say somewhat controversial medications. I mean, it's, it's the most commonly used for, for, constipation it works pretty well for sure i mean there's usually minimal side effects there's some anecdotal evidence out there that there's some neuropsychiatric effects for some people there's definitely some anecdotal evidence about that nothing's really been proven yet but i don't know there's a lot of people actually doing good research on that to actually prove it or not um, from my standpoint i always try to minimize medication use so that would be a last resort i don't think it's a problem you know specifically to use it if you need it especially in the short term but I think that that should be the last thing that you do. One, you should be asking why are they having constipation? What's going on? Is there something in the diet? Are we sensitive to some sort of food? Um, can we add more fiber, more, more, you know, smoothies, more fruit, whatever it is that we can do to increase that the, or soften up the poop? Can we um, do some prune juice or, or some sort of juice that helps bring more liquid in the stools to get them to go to the bathroom. Uh, there are lots of natural supplements out there that you could do or homeopathics you could try. Then there's magnesium. Usually we'll go to magnesium first. Um, and that usually works pretty well. There's lots of kinds of magnesium out there. Usually you're deficient in magnesium anyways. Uh, and the good side effect for magnesium is, is diarrhea. So if you give enough of it, it will usually work just as well as, as Miralax and probably fewer side effects. Uh, so I, very rarely go to Miralax, but it, I have used it before just very rarely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Last question. Cause I know mm -hmm. we are running short on time. This is a little bit of a controversial one, um, mm -hmm. but because this is my, my domain, sleep is my domain. I always like to ask this of different kinds of professionals, um, that I have on my page. I would love to hear what your thoughts are on non-responsive sleep training methods, like cry it out. Yeah. If so you're comfortable sharing. No, yeah, I'm, I'm very comfortable because it's something that we, we talk about all the time. And like most things with, with pediatrics, there isn't one right way. I think every family is different and everyone has to know themselves and, and their own kids. I, I think that ignoring a baby full out and, you know, going super hardcore and just be like, oh, I'll see you in the morning and you can cry for as long as you want. is probably not ideal for babies, but it probably does work. You know, whether, what you, what, what cost you get from doing that, I, it's still hard to know, but I think that there are many there are many ways in between, you know, letting a baby fully cry it out and and um, not letting them cry at all. So it just depends. I, I think it depends on the age. It depends on the family. Some people are very comfortable um, working on sleep training on the earlier end, and they have jobs or, or lifestyles that it's really important for their kid to sleep through the night. For them, um, maybe not so much for the baby, but for them more. And I think that's okay. And, and there are other families that really don't want to do it. And I think that's okay too. Some kids at some point are going to need some sort of training. Sometimes you need to work on skills to get kids to where they, they need to be just like bike riding. And they might be a little bit unhappy about it in the short term. Other times they'll just learn on their own. Um, there are certainly kids at three and four that still crawl into their parents' bed every day. So, you know, at what point are you comfortable with that? You know, some people are fine with that until their kids 
15 and other people maybe they want to sleep through the night so i personally i'm in the middle and i think that some gentle sleep training for a lot of people is okay in terms of you know maybe checking on them after a couple minutes maybe increasing the amount of time slowly over the days in terms of how long you let them be upset you know moving them to a different room all of those things i think it's it's a gentle transition where you make sure that they that they're okay make sure that they um, didn't, are, are healthy and safe. And then you can go in there and make sure that they're fine, but you don't necessarily have to pick them up or, or swaddle them or give them food potentially. And it also depends how young they are. I think the younger they are, the more, the more you can probably reasonably do. And the older they are, the more leeway you have, because they're a little bit older probably. Um, but there, there's, I, I've read so many things about this and there's very varying views about, um, you know, whether you should or should not do it and whether there's any long-term issues. I don't think the, the data shows that there is long-term issues from doing any sleep training, but at the same time, I think that kids need nurturing and, and love and, and want parents to be there. So I think there's a fine balance of, of knowing your kid and knowing where you can maybe push them a little bit and get them over that hump for a day or two. Um, and yeah, there's a little bit of crying, but a lot of times if you do work on it for a day or two, then you vastly decrease the crying over the long run. So I, <laughs> I think it's a good question with no exact answer. I think you got to know yourself and learn all the different methods and then figure out what resonates best with your family and then follow it. But what I will say for sure is if you are going to do it, you have to pick something. You have to be comfortable with it. Every, all the you know, family members, both parents need to be comfortable with it and you have to stick with it. It's not going to work if you're kind of wishy-washy with it. You have to, if you're going to work on sleep training, then you, know, you want to do it and, and, and work on it, whatever pattern for a couple of days. And it usually will work. I guess the bigger question is, should you? I think that's going to be a <laughs> yeah. <each> parent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing your opinion. Um, I will just briefly give a, my opinion. I, I respect your, your views on that. I appreciate the nuance in your answer and the realization that it's a complex issue. Um, and the people that are listening probably already know my views about this because I talk about it a lot and it's what my Instagram account is about and everything. But, um, I believe that, it is, we know, we, I don't believe it. We know that babies thrive from responsive caregiving and children. Um, I believe that cries should be responded to when possible. I do think it's okay to change patterns that aren't working for you. I do think it can be done in a responsive way. So you can be there with your child as you're setting up new patterns for how you support them. Um, some of the research surrounding sleep training is really, really um, biased and iffy. A lot of the research that was done that shows that it quote unquote works to get babies sleeping longer was using um, subjective measures. So it was using parental report, which we know is highly inaccurate, especially at night and sleep because parents are sleeping. Just because the parents are sleeping doesn't mean the baby's sleep is improved. The studies that used actigraphy, which actually measures it's an objective measurement of sleep actually show that non sleep trained babies and sleep trained babies wake up the same amount and sleep trained babies don't actually like their sleep doesn't significantly improve, which I just think is really, really interesting because we know that overall sleep training isn't actually teaching a baby or helping them sleep better necessarily. It's really just teaching them not to signal. Um, mm -hmm. So those are my brief, those are my brief um, little, my little summary or opinion. So we get two different kind of opinions there. But again, I appreciate your views and you're sharing that. And I fully believe that parents should be able to make the right choice for their family. I just really want parents to have informed consent when it comes to sleep training and realize that they don't have to teach their baby to self-soothe. They will learn to self-regulate 
through co-regulation with a calm, responsive caregiver. And that's actually how they learn. Um, and so I think there's a lot of misleading terminology being used in the sleep training world to make it sound kind of flowery and light and pleasant. And it's really kind of disguising what the sleep training actually is. So I just really want parents to be able to make informed decisions. And if that is to sleep train, if that's what they need to do, that's their decision. Um, but I, I know a lot of parents also go into sleep training feeling a lot of pressure, like it's the only way to do it and they have to do it in order to quote, quote unquote, set their child up for success. So that's, yeah, those no. are my brief thoughts on it. I, and I, I mean, everything you said, is, I totally agree with it. And that's why it's hard because it, there's such a nuanced you know, almost everything, right? There's not one way to almost do anything for everybody. That's just not how the world works. And I wish that there were a lot more discussions, especially when it comes to parenting and these kind of topics of, you know, kind of debate and discussion and going back to the literature. Because for some of these things, it's like, exactly like I said, the data is not the best. It's definitely not conclusive. Most of the data is not perfect. And so to make people feel like they need to do it one way or there's exactly one right way. It's not ideal. And, and a lot of practitioners out there, like they, you know, they have some sort of bias or something they're trying to sell or whatever it is. And they're like, this is the way. And if you don't do it this way, then your kid's going to have horrible problems. It's like, it's not true. Like there, there's such a wide range of what will probably work. And at the end of the day, you know, if you do a little bit of sleep training or not, it's probably not going to matter that much in the long run. Um, but the stress that you feel from that will <laughs> if you're so stressed right. about each and every decision when the decisions are you know maybe not monumental they, they could matter because you have to like know what works for yourself and your kids but there's definitely not one right way to, to sleep train or not there's not one right way to start feeding your baby there's not one right way to you know do discipline like there, there's so many things with such a wide array of, of choices and that change all the time and are very specific to your own family and what works or doesn't. And you might be super pro doing sleep training and it will totally not work for you. And then you're gonna have to find some other way or, or the other way around. And you're like, I, my kid wakes up every hour. I got to do something about this. And it's like, well, maybe they, you do need to work. You know, there, there's just situations that are so specific to each family. And, and I think the important thing is kind of presenting the information around safety and what's what's available out there and let people make good informed decisions. Yeah. And one more thing, because you mentioned a baby who wakes every hour. Well, the other thing that I really want parents to know about sleep training and babies that are waking so often, um, and that I really also would love for more doctors to, to recognize as well, is that often these babies who are waking hourly or something like that and just cannot sleep these longer stretches, they are often uncomfortable or they have a breathing issue or they have an oral ties issue. Um, so that discomfort could stem from a food sensitivity or a breathing issue, but it's normally related to one of those issues. I work with these families all the time who have been through, you know, five to 10 to 15 healthcare providers, not all of them dismissed their concerns, just said to sleep train. And so a lot of times these babies are actually in distress or they're having trouble breathing. And so sleep training is only going to mask that symptom. Um, and so for these babies that are hourly wakers, it's really, really important to try to get to the root cause of why they are waking so frequently. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Dr. Gator, thank you so much for being here, for having this conversation. I learned a lot from you um, and I really appreciate it. Can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to learn more from you? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. The easiest places would be on Instagram at uh, Dr. Joel Gator or my masterclass website, raisingamazingplus.com. And you can go on there and get a free trial um, to go on and see all the different parenting masterclasses. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.